Well, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to the book of Isaiah. We continue to look at Isaiah's Christmas children as we are looking at these children that God is, is using in order to be signs of what he is doing for his people. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 8, verse 16, and we'll read down through chapter 9, verse 7. I want you to see as we read through this, don't just listen to the words and start trying to theologically parse out what's being said. I, I know that you do that, I do that. What I want you to do is listen to the imagery. Because it is in the imagery that God is seeking to captivate our attention this morning. Isaiah 8, beginning in verse 16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken 
as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is gifted. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you indeed have come to us and snatched us out of the gloom of darkness. And in Christ, you have, as we read moments ago, qualified us for the eternal inheritance of the saints in light. By redeeming us from the kingdom of darkness and drawing us fully into the kingdom of your beloved Son. But there is still darkness with which we wrestle as your people. A darkness that still exists within this world, but closer to home, Lord, a darkness that still resides in our own hearts and often covers up our understanding. And so use your word today to shine that light of Christ once again into the deepest, darkest depths of our hearts, that we would be renewed in Christ and in the joy of our salvation. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you have not been paying attention to the hymns we have been singing the last several weeks in worship, you will find in every one of them this mixture of gloom and joy. You will find in them this this contrast of darkness and light and and so essential are these messages and connected to the advent and in connection to christmas itself you will also find these things combined even in the secular christmas songs as people at this time of year are experiencing both that that weird combination that is so true to our existence in this world, one of gloom 
and sadness, while at the same time, there is joy. And as Americans, abundance. One writer that I read this week pointed out this contrast, and, and in doing so, it wasn't in order to, to point us to the hope of the season which is found in Jesus Christ. It was instead, her take was the reason all of these songs have these themes is because, well, that's just simply what we have to endure and that we need to look beyond that experience in any way that we can. What God is trying to get us to see here in Isaiah is the exact opposite. It is in fully embracing the reality of gloom, darkness, sadness, dare I say in a Reformed church, doubts. Now, this, I'm not talking about unbelievers. I'm talking about us. Doubts. Will God really do what he has said? Can I really trust God when everything just seems to be crumbling around me? Just in a conversation right before the service, I was talking with someone about all of the the varying degrees of death and distress that the families of this church have experienced this year. Just a couple weeks ago, there were three in one week. Things continue to look to be falling apart when we look around the world. Things continue to be falling apart when we assess our our own bodies when you wake up with that pain in the morning and and it just gets worse through the day and you're you're being called to to be faithful to your calling amidst that pain and that pain can be physical in connection to the body quite often it is also psychological and emotional if if you and I are honest we cannot escape it at least We cannot escape it in and of ourselves. And that is why the honesty to to grab hold of the reality of the gloom and the darkness, the sadness, the doubts, the distress. The reason we do that is as God has been trying to capture the imagination of our faith here from the book of Isaiah is that in, in being honest and grappling with that, it, it provides us the very opportunity that we need to realize that we are inadequate so that we look outside of our inadequacies. Not to just something that might exist somewhere out there, but to the God who has revealed himself as the one who is high and holy and exalted, the one who inhabits eternity from Isaiah 58, but yet who has come to dwell with the lowly, 
to the one who embraces his holiness as a way of looking to God's grandeur. God has been setting before us this message, that that core message of the Advent, that core message of Christmas as we reflect upon the, the God-made flesh to dwell among us. We, we remember that God loves to put His power and splendor on display through what looks to be weak and small and fragile and helpless. And He does this by coming in the very figure of one who is small and weak and helpless. And from the very beginning of the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3, we have been looking at the way God uses the figure of the child to direct us to the weakness and the dependence that is necessary for us to benefit from his largeness from his eternal power and strength, his lack of anything incomplete or weak. He uses the figure of the child throughout redemptive history, but here within this small section of Isaiah, he has used multiple children in order to direct us to away from ourselves to himself, and with the specific thing in mind that God uses the small to overturn the big. He uses the weak to humble the strong. And so he has directed his people to that first child, Sha'er Jeshuv, whose name means a remnant will return. And little Judah, who was once part of this grand, well, not so grand, but at least 12 tribes, has been reduced to two tribes. And what they are being told is because of their evil king, who is leading them into greater and greater evil, where they are using power and strength and money in the way that the nations use those things rather than the way that they are called to use them. God is all-powerful. Everything belongs to him. And yet, what has been his disposition with that power and with that wealth? He shares it. And he shares it with those who are not willing to receive, who are not uh, 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 worth uh, um, in and of themselves receiving that from him. He doesn't share it with those who do a good job. He shares it with all whom he has made. And the calling of God's people is to reveal him in that way. Whereas those who've received these benefits and have received from him these wonderful gifts, we are to turn around and share them. But the people of God at the time of Isaiah in the the mid-700s 
They're not doing that. They're robbing one another. The government is oppressing the weak. They are stealing the, inherit, the, the land of inheritance from one another. They are running schemes. And those who are strong take advantage of the weak. And God has come to them. It's, it's all laid out in Isaiah chapter 1. And because of these things, he says, You're, at least a donkey knows its own master. You have no recognition that I am your God. And more importantly, that you are my people. And so through the figure of the child, he has, he has shown uh, that uh, 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 Judah, that they are about to be reduced even further. Because God is going to judge them. And Israel and Syria and the coalition that they have put together in order to try to stand against the big bully of Assyria, they're going to come in. And they're going to try to oppress Judah. They're going to try to, to win victory over Judah. They're going to attempt to, to rob Judah of, of their wealth, to rob them of their people. And God says in the midst of this coalition and, and the, the, the in, inherent evil that they are perpetrating against Judah, God says, Sha'er Jeshuv, a remnant will return. God is going to allow this judgment, but it will not be complete and it will not be total. And so the people of God are then pointed to the child Emmanuel. This miraculous child that is prophesied to come forth, that will be a very unexpected child, born in a very unexpected circumstance, who will be born more than likely, as we, as we looked at from, from a poor perspective, one who is not powerful and strong. And this child, Emmanuel, whose name means God with us, is a child that will be born who will experience the very judgment that God is bringing against Judah. Let that sink in for a second. A child that represents God's presence with his people will experience his own justice and his own judgment. The child, Emmanuel, will go through the distress, and the destruction as a sign that God is with us even in the depths of death itself. We have been called in Sha'er Jeshuv to a courageous faith. We are called in Emmanuel to a comforted faith. And then last week, we, we looked at Meher Shalal Hashbaz. The child who, who is born and who is given the name of the inscripturated promise of God. Now what's interesting is that Meher Shalal Hashbaz, as, as a child, he is given as a sign to point to the child Emmanuel. So you've got 
The figure of a child being used to point to the figure of a child being used to point to the figure of a child. See how God is doing this. And Meher Shalal Hashbaz is a sign to, to give um, confidence to God's people that what he has promised is going to happen. And so he has promised that there will be a protection and that there will be a salvaging of his people. He has promised a, a future deliverance. He has promised protection through the coming distress. And how do we know that that promise can be trusted? Well, he had that promise written on a big billboard for everyone to see. And then that inscripturated promise became incarnate in the child, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. You see what's happening there? God's promise being written in that written word becoming flesh. And as Isaiah has said here in chapter 8, these children are signs. This is the same word uh, uh, in in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The word sign here is the same word used for sign in the New Testament when referring both to the miracles of Jesus, but also it is the word that is used in reference to the sign of a sacrament. These children are presenting to God's people something miraculous, something supernatural. And it is, and they are doing so in such a way that they are sacramental. They are things to be seen and touched and heard in order to attest to God's trustworthiness so that we will cultivate a courageous faith, so that we will cultivate a comforted faith, so that we will cultivate a confident faith. Because the reality is that we need these signs because the darkness and the gloom are real. Notice at the end of chapter 8, the darkness and the gloom are tangible. It's not just that some big bully is going to sweep in and, and overtake things, but it is going to have very real world applications. As the people who, who were promised to live in this land and, and to have it as an eternal inheritance as long as they served Yahweh, by the way. Because they are not serving him, because they are serving the idols of the nations, God is going to allow this king of Assyria to sweep in and take the people of the ten tribes of Israel and take them away. He's going to displace the people by taking them into Mesopotamia. He is going to displace the population 
as, as the soldiers are going to come in and they're going to kill as many of the warriors as they can. And then they're going to take the women and the children and make them slaves. They are going to go through the land that is their inheritance, but the land will only be giving forth a meager harvest and they will be hungry. In fact, if you notice what the text says, they're going to be hangry. Now, I know a thing or two about being hangry. But did you notice that? They're going to be hangry. They're going to be so hungry and so agitated by the situation that it's not going to result in them repenting and turning to God. Instead, they're going to turn their face up to him. Now, we have our own physical gestures that I won't do here that would help you really understand what that means. But they're going to become hangry. Darkness. Gloom. It is so real. And it has these tangible expressions that you and I continue to see taking place within this world. There is a greater amount of slavery being exercised right now globally than what we know of in the past. It's gotten better in some places, but it's gotten much worse in others. And it's got so many different forms. But the reality is, in, in a world at the time of the ancient Near East, they, they couldn't perceive of an existence that did not have oppression. They couldn't conceive of, of an existence where there wasn't war and slavery that resulted from the war. They, they couldn't imagine a, an existence where, where being a small country uh, provided you any kind of security because you would constantly have to give your wealth away to a bigger king in order to protect you. And yet God has promised his people in the midst of all of this, if you will but trust me, you will not have to worry about hunger. You will not have to worry about threat. You will not have to worry about serving another, uh, another nation because you will not have to serve those nations' gods. People of God struggle to believe this. And in the doubts of Ahaz, what he decides to do is he tries to partner up with Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria. Rather than partnering with this coalition of small countries, I'll just partner with the big man himself. His doubts lead to him trusting in his own ingenuity. And the result is the complete destabilization of the people of God. And yet, 
God is not done with his people. But if you notice this real darkness, this real gloom that has all of these concrete, tangible expressions that are still going on today, you notice that is not the end of the story, but there is this dramatic shift. And those who are, who are being described as walking about in darkness and walking about in gloom, <coughs> those experiencing the, the doubts that have led to their destabilized faith, the, the ones who are embracing all of this, we are told that they will not be left in the darkness that they have chosen for themselves. But you've got to get the context. Because those who have seen a great light in Isaiah 9 is not Judah. It is Israel and the nations. Let that sink in. This promise is, is not to Judah. If you'll just hang on, you know, as a remnant will return, as I will go with you through the distress, as, as, as it is sure, you know, and, and, and can be trusted, He doesn't now give them the promise that they will see a light. What he is promising is that the perpetrators of the violence are going to see a great light. And if that doesn't cause you to stop and evaluate your own heart and how you view those who are agents of darkness around the world, then we don't get Christmas. Because the supernatural gift that God is promising here is being promised to those who have rejected the covenant, to those who have rejected the throne of David, to those who have rejected the temple worship in Jerusalem, those who have rejected Uh, all of the promises of God. Those who have teamed up with Gentile nations to be the agents of darkness and gloom and hunger and distress to God's people. They are the ones who are being promised this light. Notice how as we have this dramatic shift to the promise that those who uh, at the end of chapter 8, they will be thrust into thick darkness. We are then told immediately in chapter 9, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In chapter 8, what God has said is, is to Judah, he says, look, take heart. Because those who are going to come against you, I'm going to come against them. Those who, who, who exercise this violence against you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with them. You don't have to. I'll deal with them for you. But notice what God says in his dealings with those. The perpetrators of the violence against you who have caused your fears, who have caused your doubting, I 
am going to reveal to them. In the midst of the deep darkness that they have chosen for themselves, I will not let them have what they want. And I am going to go into the darkness after them. That is who is receiving this promise of the coming glory child. And the point here, beloved, is that you and I so often get tempted to a presumption of God's gracious and merciful dealings with us that we forget that we are the ones in deep darkness because of our sin and our rebellion and that God didn't owe us anything. But he has chosen to go into the darkness after us. And he has done so through a most, if you look at the title of the sermon, through a most inconceivable and incredible gift. Inconceivable is a word that directs us to something that is so extraordinary that it is unthinkable or unimaginable. Incredible is is so often misused in English language today, but it is to speak of something that is so extraordinary that it is impossible. And that is exactly what God is promising. If you notice here the this geographical region that he has mentioned in verse 1, very specifically is speaking to that northernmost uh, geographical region of the upper ten tribes of Israel. And this was the geographical region that Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, would first come into Israel. This is the geographical region that, that had already participated in evil against Judah, but now will receive evil from Assyria. And, and what's happening here is that Tiglath-Pileser doesn't just come in and conquer them and kill them and plunder them and enslave them. What he does is he takes them and he moves them geographically out of the promised land up into Mesopotamia. And he brings settlers from all the surrounding areas and he brings them in to be the ones who now live in that land. And we know very specifically, as I have mentioned, that the settlers come in and they are told to purposefully intermarry with any of the women that are left over in order to breed those ten tribes out of existence. And look, this has a really real-world application right now. The salvation of God is so supernatural 
that it doesn't depend on God's people knowing what tribe they are part of, having any kind of pure physical lineage, and there is absolutely no need for possession of the land. Because God is going to do something that is utterly and completely inconceivable and incredible. And he's going to take a people that are displaced, destroyed, and have died. And he is going to bring them into the joy and the abundance of an eternal and universal kingdom. Let that sink in. God is not limited by the things of this world. He is not limited by the realities of a fallen generation. He's not limited by the evil that is perpetrated against other people. Regardless of how tangible that that is, regardless of the limitations that are so natural to you and to me in the way that we view this world and we view life in the body, God is not hindered by those things. And there is a promise to Israel that will go out of existence that they will one day participate in a universal and eternal kingdom under the dominion of the long-awaited promised Messiah. What does that tell us not only about what God has called us to and in our faith as as we reflect and ponder upon these things during Advent and Christmas, not only for ourselves, but what does this mean for us as participants in his ongoing mission to rescue his remnant from the dark? What confidence does this give us not only to endure with a courageous faith for what we get, but to endure with the type of courageous faith that is willing to go out into a world that, yes, may want to shame us and may want to perpetrate acts of darkness against us. And yet, because there is the promise of light for them that we go. And that we, as Jesus has told us, become his light to the world. And as we serve as the light of Christ to the nations. Is that your faith? Not just that you get to get a gift, but that you get to participate in giving a gift. And will you? Participate with Christ in this, who is described here 
as being the hope of the nations because, one, notice here he is described as the God-man. He is described with the titles that God himself has. He is described as the one who is different, the one who is a participant in, in, in the character of God. But notice this one who is described as being God comes as a child. Are children threatening? Is that why God is using the figure of the child throughout redemptive history? Because they are symbols of power and strength and military might and should scare you? The little child? Well, the reality here is God is continuously directing us that the means by which He is going about His mission is just as inconceivable and incredible to us as the mission itself because He is going about fulfilling it by becoming a child. What is your participation in the mission of Christ? Is it to try to bulk yourself up so that you can argue people into the corner and make fun of them because they, they don't get God's truth? Or is it because they don't get God's truth that you are willing to humble yourself? And maybe even be willing to lose an argument by simply pointing someone to truth without having to win. Christmas, beloved, is about not just the mission of Christ for us, but the mission of Christ through us. And we are not only called to, to have the childlike faith described in Isaiah chapter 8. We are called to be what we are accounted to be. That we are to be the child. And as we enjoy the joy and abundance of the, the supernatural, miraculous new life that has come to those who were dead. Being the inheritors of light as those who were lost in deep darkness. As those who enjoy an eternal kingdom of unending peace, justice, and liberation will our enjoyment of those things in Christ lead us to offer those things to those who are lost in darkness and experiencing very real and very tangible oppression. What will we do with the eternal inheritance that has been gifted to us? Will we use it to try to make a name for ourselves by pummeling everyone who stands in our way? 
Or will we use that in order to give ourselves away to those who have no hope in and of themselves? Because, beloved, this is where you and I would be if it was left up to you and to me. But notice that the Lord in his zeal has chased after his enemy in order to make them part of the kingdom of his son. And so as we celebrate tomorrow and as we remember, and I hope you read in the accounts of of the Gospels of the birth of Christ and the celebration of the angels and the shepherds and in the, the worship of the wise men and all the things that are going on, will you also reconcile yourself not to the gift, simply to the gift received, but to your participation in the gift giving to those who hate you, who do not want your good, who would love to to make things difficult for you, Will you, in the love of Christ, risk yourself because the Lord loves to use what is seemingly small, weak, helpless in order to constrain everything in heaven and on earth to the new heavens and to the new earth and to do it in such a way that the only explanation can be that God has done it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is so natural for us to to focus in on the gift that we have received in Christ and we ask for the, the aid and help of the Holy Spirit that in the midst of the distractions and in the midst of, of our own doubts, in the midst of, of, of the, those times where we're just unwilling to follow you in the way that you have revealed in Christ. Lord, we thank you that you do not give up on us in those times, but with great zeal, you continue to chase after us with your grace. And Lord, as we take that into ourselves, may it lead us not only to receive from you, but to resemble you as we take you out into the world. Help your church, O Lord, to be known as the recipients of grace. Those who have received your mercy, not because we were worthy of it, but because you chose to qualify us for it through the ministry of your Son. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.